You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Happy Mother's Day. I know that phrase is a loaded phrase for a lot of people. Um, I know it's a weird holiday for a lot of people, right? I know there are some of us in the room who are just like, this day is awesome. I want to celebrate um, who God is and what he's done through me and some of the identity I have in representing a mother. I know some of us engage this holiday with an expectation of this is my day. I get my stuff today. And I know some of this this holiday is really painful because maybe um, there are longings or uh, connected to motherhood that haven't been met or maybe there are losses of relationship or people that make that painful. But I think it's important for the church to actually acknowledge Mother's Day. I know it's not like a church holiday or anything, but I think it's important for us to acknowledge it because the reality is, guys, that mothering as a concept is a really divine and important thing. You know, we believe firmly in a doctrine called the Imago Dei, that the image of God is stamped onto his creation. That when God breathed the breath of life into his uh, creation in humanity, that he made them something special and set apart from the rest of creation. And there is something inherent in that design, in that image of God, in that Imago Dei, in, in masculinity and femininity, that, that each of those pieces equally and importantly tell us about the person of God. You know, God, for whatever reason, right, he chose to use the language of father in revealing himself, and he chose to send his son. But the reality is, we know that because God is creator and because we're made in his image, that there is something about femininity that teaches us about who God is. And if you have been connected to the church for more than five minutes, you know that is true. You can think about the women God has used in your life as spiritual mothers, who've taught you about the heart, the tender, caring, mothering, life-giving heart of God for you. I think about my own mom who loves Jesus passionately and raised me and my brothers in that environment, teaching us God's care and God's tenderheartedness and God's, God's matriarchal attributes, right? That makes some of us in the room uncomfortable, but it's important. And I think about some of the spiritual mothers that God put in my life through youth pastors' wives and through Miss Loretta White, this blessed widow who taught Sunday school for kindergarten kids at my church growing up and taught me about what heaven is. And I just want to take a second, I want to read a couple names to you guys um, that you should know. Mary, mother of Jesus. She had an important role. Mary Magdalene, the woman who proclaimed the resurrection first. Salome, the woman who helped fund Jesus' ministry. Phoebe, the woman who delivered the epistle to the Romans. Aquila, the woman who God used to help train up and raise up one of the mightiest preachers of the early church. Dorcas, the woman known for her kindness and generosity to the least of these. Eunice, 
the woman who sought to faithfully preach the gospel to her grandson, who grew up to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Ama Sinclatina, one of the desert mothers, one of the first Christian monks who went off in the desert outside of Egypt and spent her life reflecting on the truth of the scripture and speaking prophecies and truth of Christ over the early persecuted church. Perpetua, one of the first Christian martyrs who wrote about her experience, who gave birth in prison and handed her baby through the bars to her father who hadn't been arrested and charged him with raising up of her child while she went and boldly faced the lions in the arena and was ripped to shreds. Macrina, one of the women who challenged and held the Cappadocian church fathers to account as they were working through creating some of the first organized Christian theology. This one is one of my favorites. Massinia of Hippo, a woman who was a leader in her church who faithfully taught discipleship and, and baptism classes and who faithfully prayed and ministered to her rebellious, sinful, atheistic, secular son for years and years and years and years, and continued to preach the gospel to him faithfully for decades while he pursued his flesh and sin and pleasures, until one day he finally, after a word of counsel and a word of prophetic prayer from his mother, fell on his face in repentance and met the person of Jesus and accepted salvation from the cross. And his name was St. Augustine, and he wrote the first systematic theology textbook. It's crazy. And you can keep going. Lottie Moon, single woman who helped bring the gospel to China. Annie Armstrong, Elizabeth Elliot, Barb Chapman, Christine Taylor. The list keeps going and going and going and going. The church, beloved, the church is carried on by the person and the work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. But you need to know something. God loves, loves showing his shepherd's heart through all of his church, men and women. And we're here today, if we're honest, because of the faithful ministry of spiritual mothers in our life. Amen? And we've gotten to know who God is in large part through the spiritual mothers in our lives. And so we want to take a minute and we want to honor mothering and femininity in the room. And guys, listen, you need to know we have six, six elders, six pastors of this church, and we're all just a bunch of dudes. And if there's anything dudes are famous for, it's not knowing how to uh, properly express their emotions to the women in their life, right? So we don't know what we're doing, and we're terrible, and we're sorry about that. But we do want to honor you guys this morning, and so uh, we have some flowers for you guys. And so if you're, if you're in this space today, and man, and, and you just... You just want to receive that gift from, from your elders today, if that's something that you feel like would help you just be honored and, and help us to acknowledge the Imago Day, the unique expression of God's person in you as a woman today. I'm going to invite you uh, to just kind of stand up and let our deacons give you some roses. Um, and if you just think that's the most awkward thing on earth and you don't want to do it, you know, that's cool. Uh, listen, I understand that we're a bunch of meatheads who don't know what we're doing. And so I apologize for that. But 
uh, a couple of guys are grabbing those. They're going to bring them in here. I mean, honestly, I know this is a, a silly token, but it's something that we just want to tangibly say, like, we need you. We value you. You are important. So mothers in the room, stand and be honored. Women who uh, some of you maybe haven't had kids, but you know that you have been a spiritual mother. Uh, you know that God expresses his feminine heart through you. Stand to be honored today. We have, uh, I can, we have plenty of flowers. So be, allow, allow us to honor you for a couple minutes. I could do something right now about like the image of like a rose and it's beautiful and there's thorns. I'm just going to be honest. We're a bunch of idiots and we just got you guys flowers. That's just what it is. <laughs> uh, so as they're handing that out, uh, we're going to be in Mark today. I was thinking to myself as a pastor, I thought, man, we want to honor the women in our church. So how, what are we going to do on Mother's Day? And I thought, let's do a sermon on eschatology. <laughs> so that's where we're at today. I didn't think anything would bring me back to uh, spiritual truths my mother imparted to me besides thinking about God's final judgment. So that's where we're at. <laughs> um, no, seriously, though, we're, we are in Mark chapter 13 today. Uh, we, 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 we're done with Mark. We finished it, but we're going to take, we said we were going to take a few weeks and we were going to go back and catch some of the sermons we missed, um, because of snow days this winter. So we are in Mark 13. If you want to open your Bible there, if you don't have a Bible today, I would encourage you to grab one of the ones on the end of each row or just look down the end of the row with a stern look and someone will pass you one. We, uh, we really care about access to God's word here at Red Tree. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you don't own one, man, grab one of those and take it home. Uh, talk to one of our pastors. We'll get you a copy of the Bible that's maybe a little nicer than these few Bibles. We, we, we think that's important. So we're jumping into Mark 13 today. Uh, some of you remember, if you were back here in February, we went through some of these texts. This is the only chunk of Mark that gets apocalyptic, where Jesus talks about the end times. Uh, and there were, we kind of divided it into three sections. And we missed the middle one uh, because of a snow day, and we kept going. So what I'm going to do here is, is we're going to, our actual text today is verses 14 through 27. I'm going to read us the whole of this chunk of scripture just so we can kind of get ourselves back in the mindset of what's going on here. And guys, I really do. I just, I know, like, I know a lot of you cringe when we start talking about, uh, talking about eschat eschatological passages or end times passages, but I just, I'm just so confident that Jesus has something powerful and joyful and encouraging for us today. And so I would encourage you uh, to, to, to do your best just to be in this with us today, and we'll see what God does with it. So I'm going to start us uh, in verse 3, even though our text today uh, starts in verse 14. I'm just going to get us to this whole chunk. So remember, this is, uh, this is Jesus has just left the temple. He's on the Mount of Olives. And starting in verse 3 of the 13th chapter of the gospel according to Mark, we hear this. And as he, being, he being Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. 
There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. See, great Mother's Day text. (laughs) And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is getting into our text for today. But when you see the abomination of desolation... Standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infant in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And this is the word of the Lord. Dang, man, that's intense. So here's what we're going to do. I want to put this text kind of back into its context, get us back in the flow of what's going on with Mark. 
I think that's going to lead us to a really important truth that God has for us today. I think this text is really going to kind of stand on its own when we're able to cut through some of the confusion or more stark language in it. And then uh, we'll wrap around by reading a text from uh, 2 Thessalonians, and we'll end our time with communion today. I think it'll be good. So here's the deal. Remember, Jesus is near the end of his ministry. He's come to Jerusalem for the final time. Uh, he's, he's gone into the temple. He's, he's sparred mentally, verbally with all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He has cast his judgment on the temple worship, and he has left. He walked out of the temple, and he's made his way out of Jerusalem, across the valley to the Mount of Olives. This is an um, olive grove sitting on a hill that overlooks Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives, the place where they are, kind of puts you on equal footing with the temple. Remember, Jerusalem's kind of built like this, right? So they're, they're outside the city, but they're standing in a place where you can look across the valley, and you can see the temple mount really clearly. And so Jesus has cast judgment on the temple and left the temple and left the city, and he's on the Mount of Olives. And in that context, his followers come to him and they're like, man, that temple is awesome, isn't it? Isn't that so cool? Like, look at, look at, and then, by the way, like, Herod's temple was a huge deal. It was an absolute, absolutely magnificent piece of architecture. It took decades to build. Uh, Literally, some of the stones that are in place, they're like, we don't have machines today that could move them. It's crazy some of the stones they used to, to actually build up the Temple Mount and make Herod's, Herod's Temple. And Jesus responds to that by going, yeah, that is pretty cool. Uh, it's going to get trashed. Yeah, God's going to destroy that thing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, don't, don't put your hopes in a cool building. And then they respond by going, wait, are you serious? What? How's this going to go down? And this is how our text starts. It's his closest friends come to him and they're like, what you just said is a big deal. That's, the temple is the absolute center of Jewish worship and Jewish identity. And for Jesus, who has declared himself Messiah at this point, to just casually go, yeah, God's going to destroy that thing. His disciples go, what, what are you talking about? What is this? When's this going to happen? How, are, how, how will we know what's going on? And Jesus begins this section in Mark 13, where he's delivering prophecies about the end times and also about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, what makes this chapter inherently hard for us to engage is that when it was written, when Jesus spoke these things, and even when Mark was collected and put together, everything Jesus is talking about was in the future tense. But for us, reading it 2,000 years later, only parts of it are in the future tense. You see, Jesus here is talking about, he's prophesying the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome, and he's using that prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as a foreshadowing or an image of God's final judgment and his return. So in Jesus' context, he's speaking about two future events. This will happen. It's going to be terrible. But listen, that's all that exists to do is to point you to what really is coming when I come back. Now, for us reading it today, we go, this already happened, and it was pretty terrible, but we're kind of separated from it. And so it's easy for us to read this text as exclusively about future events, but it's hard to do. You can't do the text justice and do that. We have to acknowledge that Jesus kind of has this twofold purpose here, and that makes it a little confusing. 
Because Jesus goes back and forth in his discussion between talking about Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem and talking about the end of all things and the final judgment. It was easier for him to do it because it's all future. But for us, we have to kind of weave in there and, and kind of talk through what parts already happened and what parts haven't happened yet. Does that make sense? So he gives this whole piece and he basically starts talking about how things are going to get worse and worse and more painful for the church. And this is the section we're not necessarily getting into today. This is uh, verses 3 through 13. But he gets into this idea, he, pre- he starts by presenting this idea that things will get really bad and the church will be massively persecuted. The church, the church will be betrayed and hurt and rallied and killed and, and it will look awful. People will recant their faith. They will betray one another. They will, they will do whatever they can do to save their skin, even if it means turning in their very family members to death, right? And he, said, he, he gives that piece, which, which, by the way, remember Mark was delivered to the persecuted church under Nero's persecution in the 60s. So uh, they're experiencing this. Some of the most brutal treatment of Christians in all of human history happened under Nero's persecution. And it was awful. And lots of the church in the civilized Roman world did whatever they could to apostatize themselves, to recant their faith, to save their skins. And so as Jesus is saying this, the original audience in Mark would hear this and go, yup, I know what that one's like. Yeah, that one's, that's not a new play for us. We've seen that one before. Yeah, yeah, children turning in their parents to death. For sure, seen that one. And then our text starts with Jesus using this really interesting phrase. When you see the abomination of desolation. That sounds like a Swedish heavy metal band. It probably is. And then Mark, being as cheeky as he is, gives us this little line. Let the reader understand. Oh, thanks, Mark. I know exactly what you're talking about there. Thanks for pointing out that. It's ridiculous. It's interesting, by the way. This is actually one of the most controversial verses in the New Testament because of Mark's comment. Because Mark stops and says, eh, pay attention to this. And then just keeps going, and you're going, okay, Mark, I'm paying attention. What the heck is that? And he doesn't explain it. He just says, hey, there's this thing, abomination of desolation, saying where it doesn't belong. You know, look out for that. It's going to be bad. And you're kind of sitting there going, I mean, okay, I get this general image of badness, but what does that mean? And theologians have debated this specific part of Jesus' text for the last 2,000 years of going, is this in reference to Nero? Is this in reference to to, uh, General Titus, who actually came and destroyed Jerusalem? Is this in reference to Rome as a whole? Or wait, is maybe this... Is this some future piece of the text? Like, is this, is this some like, foreshadowing to the Antichrist? And there's been all this discussion and debate about it. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but that kind of discussion just frustrates me. I, I hate talking about eschatological passages, if I'm being honest. Like, I grew up in the age of the Left Behind books, where like, the, there was like the Left Behind books, and there was like the Left Behind for Kids books, and then there was like the Left Behind made into graphic novels books. And then there was the Left Behind with Kirk Cameron movie. And then there was the Left Behind with, who's the other guy who's in it? Nick Cage. Seriously. 
if your movie franchise is two big stars or Kirk Cameron and Nick Cage, you need to take a step back and reevaluate what you're doing with your life. <laughs> but I, you know, I grew up in the midst of that stuff, and I'm just, I'm just cynical to all this, right? It just, some of this stuff, I mean, again, I'm not, I, I love the church I grew up in, and I'm not bashing them by any means, but I remember very specifically one night we had a revival night at our church growing up, and this guy came and he jumped into Mark 13 and Matthew 20, whatever, in the book of Revelation, and he started making connections for us for current political events happening in mid-90s America and what the Bible was predicting in Revelation. And he's like, see, you can just see it's coming right up. Like, we, you know, we don't know the exact day or time, but I'd say probably before I die, Jesus will come back. And I was sitting there as like a seven-year-old going, that's insane. How do you figure, I mean, how did... How did he know that Condoleezza Rice was so-and-so and that's in the Bible? And wow, this is crazy. And that kind of stuff drives me nuts. If I get one more email from someone being like, have you read this book about the blood men? <laughs> no, I won't. Some of you are like, oh, I got to go back and delete an email. <laughs> I'm not going to read your blood moon book or your red heifer sacrifice book. Oh, man. This stuff, it drives me nuts. And that's bad, by the way. The Bible cares a ton about eschatology, and we should too. See, I'm cynical to that stuff because of some of the Christian subculture I grew up in, and because of some of the foolishness the church has allowed itself to get caught up in. And by the way, I don't, I'm not saying this to be harsh, but I'm saying this as your pastor who loves you. That stuff is foolishness. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time on foolish debates and endless genealogies. It is a distraction from the mission, and it's a belittlement of the gift that is eschatology. Eschatology is just the fancy theological word for end times. Jesus talks about the end times not so that we will sit with charts and graphs and posters and Kirk Cameron movies. Jesus talks about the end times because if the Spirit of God dwells within you, then the end times is your hope. It is your hope. You see, Christ will return. And he will return in power. And he will collect those who are his. Nothing can stop that. And so when we engage in eschatology as Christians, it's not for the purpose of discerning signs and identifying which political figure we don't like as an antichrist. It's to remind ourselves of the hope of the gospel. Eschatology, end time, should be a synonym to you for hope. It should. And if it isn't, you're not engaging it right. So, we can't ignore this stuff. I want to. In fact, I, I, I did a little jig at my house when we canceled this Sunday. I didn't really. <laughs> I don't dance jigs. I, I, don't, I don't like engaging this stuff. And I avoid it most of the time. And, and man, it's just, you, just, you just miss so much of Jesus' pastoral heart for you when you miss out on end time stuff. And I think this text is the perfect example of this. You see, when Jesus gets into the abomination of desolation, and then he begins to describe all these terrible things that will happen. It'll be awful. People will be running for their lives. They'll abandon their houses. Man, it'll be awful if you're pregnant. Such a weird comment to make. You better hope it doesn't happen in winter. Dang. Okay, Jesus. All right. Like, this is intense. 
He, he gives all these images of how terrible it will be. And then, and then he gets into, once again, the church apostatizing and the church being led astray. And this stuff is super vague. And here's the thing. By the way, what Jesus is describing here with the abomination of desolation is actually a really accurate description of what happened to Jerusalem when it was conquered by Rome. You should go back and you should read about that because it's actually a really important historical event for understanding the movement of Christ's church. The destruction of the temple in AD 70. It's a big deal. The sacking of Jerusalem is a big deal. And it was terrible. It was bad. See, by that point... Palestine had made itself sour. The whole of Palestine had made itself sour in the face of the Roman government. The Jewish people had made themselves pungent in the face of the Roman government. And Christians were the scapegoat of choice for the Roman government. And so when they decided to destroy Jerusalem, it wasn't just, man, we need to get rid of this place. It's pretty bad. They decided to destroy Jerusalem. They took months destroying Jerusalem. They took their time destroying every beautiful and precious and important thing to those people. And they killed them slowly so they could see the destruction of their culture. They spent their time tearing down and breaking every stone of the temple so they could erect a pagan altar on the temple mount and sacrifice pigs on it just to insult the last remaining Jews in the city. It was brutal. And they surrounded Jerusalem and they sieged it for months while the people inside starved. It was bad. So when Jesus gives this description of when you see the abomination standing where it ought not, when you see something profane in the the sacred place and things are going badly, you better run. And you better run, not walk. Forget about your house. Forget about your clothes. Forget about your stuff. Get out of there. It's going to be bad. And it was. It was. The destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, don't get me wrong. Romans knew how to kill people really well. And they knew how to be inhumane and cruel really well. And Jerusalem wasn't the only place that got that treatment. But Jerusalem got that treatment. And, And the people who fled Jerusalem in those days fled it pretty much exactly how Jesus describes this running for their very lives, abandoning everything they could in the hopes of saving their skins. But see, I think Jesus, you have to remember that Jesus is using the destruction of of Jerusalem as an image for the larger Christian experience and the hope of Christ's return. And so I think he keeps this vague on purpose. Because here's the reality. If you've seen one antichrist, you've seen them all. There's only, one, there's only one concept of Antichrist. And it's explained perfectly in Jesus' teaching here. If you turn over to verse 21, he says, and Then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. You see, Jesus is telling us here that to follow after me means suffering. Suffering is a guarantee of the Christian life, according to Jesus. 
And, and listen, we could spend weeks of sermons on this, but the promise of the gospel is cross now and crown later. And we all have to agree on that. That if that's not your understanding of the gospel, you're not talking about the same gospel as Jesus. Cross now and crown later. To follow after Christ is to willingly open yourself up to loss and sacrifice and pain and suffering in this life so that you might experience eternity with Christ. This is the promise of Jesus. And Jesus, in his deep pastoral affection for his flock, in his abiding passionate love for his bride, gives us the gift of visions of the end times because he knows how hard it is to follow him. He knows how much it costs to walk in his steps as he did. And he warns us and says, listen, I know you love me. I know you think you love me a ton. But things will get bad enough that you will look for an out. And when someone comes along and says, here is a better salvation, there's a voice in your head that will tell you to take it and run. Because you will want the pain to stop. I'm telling you, don't listen. Don't fall prey to that. Don't give yourself to an antichrist. Because if you've seen one, you've seen them all. The destruction of Jerusalem was an abomination of desolation. It was evil. It was inhumane. It caused immense human suffering and caused many to fall away. The persecution of Nero was an abomination of desolation. It profaned the sacred and it tempted many to fall away. And many took that out. And you go throughout church history and you see that over and over and over. And beloved, I'm telling you, it does not matter how much Christian freedom, how much religious freedom our culture has given us. There are just as many antichrists calling for your affection and your loyalty today in St. Louis in 2019 as there was for the hurt and huddled persecuted church in Rome in the middle 60s. They're just as many. They just look different. And their voices may sound a little different, but it's the same thing. If you've seen one antichrist, you've seen them all. If you've seen one AOD, abomination of desolation, there you go. You've seen them all. So you can give yourself fully to the work of the gospel and you can hear the gospel call to give yourself fully to the family of Jesus and you can begin to do the work to tie your hearts to the family of Christ and you can make the commitments and sacrifices that are necessary with that where you begin to sacrifice of your time and of your money and your talents to, to serve the church and to glorify God and you'll actually see, if you do that by the way, how that begins to affect your life when you choose to actually be sacrificially, radically generous until it affects you, and you start to realize that the money that you give to the church and the money that you put towards that missionary and that church planner and the time and effort you give to serving this community and the emotional energy you give to walking alongside this person is actually affecting your life. 
and you actually can't buy that car you want to buy, and you can't do this with your home on this timeline, and you can't give yourself to this hobby because you've given yourself to other things, I guarantee you there is an antichrist that will begin to whisper in your ear saying, man, I tell you what, if you just gave yourself over to your pleasure, it would be so much freedom. If you just gave yourself over to the hoarding of wealth and comfort, it would be an amazing freedom to you. I tell you what, if you, if you kept that money and hoarded it for yourself, and you kept that time and hoarded it for yourself, wouldn't you feel free? Beloved, that is the Antichrist whispering in your ear. If you give yourself to discipleship and you are passionate about growing in holiness, and you begin to see what the scripture teaches about self-control and sexual ethics and holiness and purity, and you begin to actually sacrifice the desires of your flesh that you might live a life holy unto God, and you see what that costs you, and you realize that you don't get to just pursue pleasure when your body asks for it, and you don't get to just say yes to what feels good in the moment because you are you're setting yourself apart for holiness. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, an antichrist will begin to whisper in your ear and tell you, man, imagine if you just gave yourself over to pleasure. Imagine if you just took what you wanted for your body. You know, your body is you. Why would God give you a desire he does not want you to fulfill? Listen, this is truly the voice of God. God made you with that inkling and that desire. Fulfill it. Nothing would bring God greater joy than you doing the things he made you to do. Beloved, this is the voice of an antichrist calling you away from Christ, telling you that death is freedom, that lies are truth, that bondage is escape. If you think that the abomination of desolation ended when Titus destroyed Jerusalem, you do not understand the Christian walk. You do not understand discipleship, following after Christ. Because the promise of Christ is cross now and crown later. And we may live in a world right now in our little space, where military generals don't show up and burn down our house because of our religious beliefs. That may be our thing right now. And we can look out in the persecuted church in Asia, and in parts of Africa, in parts of the Middle East. We can hear testimonies from missionaries we're sending to the dunes about the risk on life and limb. And we can trick ourselves into thinking that the abomination is over there. Beloved, it is right here, whispering in our ears. Even right now, as we're talking about this text, even as I am describing to you the promise of Jesus, of cross now and crown later, I guarantee that some of us are sitting here and there's something in your skin that is crawling. Saying, I don't like that. That doesn't sound like freedom. That doesn't sound amazing. Why, why would God put desires in me he doesn't want me to fulfill? That doesn't seem right. Some of us are wrestling with that right in this moment. 
Because this, this is the truth of the gospel. You reject the voice of the Antichrist. He is a false prophet and a false messiah. And he is telling you that lies are true. Listen. This is verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and all the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Beloved, I have news for you. When a voice whispers in your ear and says, I am your salvation, look to me. You can stop right there and know that the Antichrist is speaking to you. When Jesus shows up in power to claim his elect, there will be no questions as to what is going on. There will be no need for convincing. There will be no clever mental arguments to take you through mental gymnastics to justify things that you know are self-centered and destructive to human flourishing. When Christ comes in power, you will have zero questions about who he is and what he's doing. In the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, it says, every knee will bow. Everything. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. When he comes in power, when the lover of our soul fulfills his vow and shows up in power to deliver us, into perfect eternity with him, there will be zero questions in your mind. You will have to do no work to determine what is true and what is false. You won't have to wrestle through minute understandings of scripture and mental justifications. He will come in power and you will see him and you will fall on your knees in confession. Come on, guys. This is the hope of the gospel. See, the promise is the suffering will absolutely be great enough that you will seek an escape. Jesus promised that. You will suffer if you follow Christ. It will cost you something, and it will be painful, and the world around you will call it foolishness. And voices will call you to false salvations and false escapes. And I'm telling you something, and I want you to hear this. If you actually pursue Christ with your all, if you don't walk the fence of weird cultural Christianity, but you actually give yourself fully to the person and work of Jesus, following him will be painful enough that you will consider the voice of the Antichrist. It will. And if you somehow think that you are spiritual enough to see through those lies in the moment and discern and always remain, you are fooling yourself. If you are actually giving yourself over fully to the person and work of Jesus, then this life will hurt. And when someone offers you an out, not hurting will sound like a really good option. I want you to hear that. Escape from trial will sound like a really good option. You know, in James 1, 
He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he has this line that I hate, where he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. He says, listen, when you hurt, it makes you better. It sanctifies you. It grows you. So how about you just stew in that? How about you don't fight that? How about you let that have its full effect? How many, I don't know about you guys, but when I hurt, my first thought is I would love to stop hurting right now. Right? My first thought is not, wow, God, thank you so much. This sanctification sure is a great thing. No, my thought is, wow, God, okay, cool, cool, I get it. Cool, 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 cool. All right, yeah, 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 I need to learn from this. Uh, can we get out of this now? What, how quickly can this be done? Even if I'm in a place, if I'm being honest with you guys, even if I'm in a place of like actual spiritual self-awareness and real confession and worship and dependence, my first thought is, okay, God, cool, I get it, yeah, to rejoice in trials, cool, 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 but how long can we get out of this? What's the fastest route out of this suffering right now? I'm telling you guys, that's when the false prophet, when the false Christ comes to whisper in your ear. And says, hey, you know what? God loves you. And he hates for you to suffer. He hates your pain. How would you take this out? Here's freedom. Here's escape. Here's salvation. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great just to not hurt in this area? Wouldn't it be great to not feel frustrated in your desires? Wouldn't it be great to not have to deal with the messiness and pain of this marriage? Wouldn't it be great to not have to stress about money for a few minutes? Wouldn't it be great to not have to feel how stressful and anxious your life is for a few hours? Man, I, you know God loves you. He wants you to be happy. Here's some salvation right here, right now. Guys, do not hear that. Do not give that voice weight in your heart. Stay awake. Stay alert. Reject those lies. And, and replace it with the unfortunate news. But really the fortunate news. That we should let steadfastness have its full effect. That we should crockpot in our suffering. That we should let it stew us. Let it soften us. You know, we believe that heaven will be perfect, right? No more suffering, no more pain. We believe that Christ will wipe away every tear from every eye that everything that is in you that is sinful will no longer be there. That's a beautiful truth, right? But think about this for a moment. How sinful are you? Right? How evil of a person are you? And I know that's like mean for me to say that to you guys, but think about that for a minute. How self-centered and self-obsessed are you? What percentage of your person, if you had to think of it that way, is given over to flesh, what percentage of your person is given over to truth? If Christ dropped you into heaven right this second, how much of you would have to be stripped away in order for you to be present in heaven? 80%? 95%? Is it like the water? I don't know how much water is in a person. Right? How, much, how much of you would have to go away for you to exist in heaven. 
That's intense to think about. That's humbling to think about. But let me tell you something. Suffering is the gift from God to prepare you for eternity. It sanctifies you. Because it draws those things out of you and replaces them with the person of Christ. That's why you let steadfastness have its full effect. Because you want to get to heaven and you want to kind of already know what it's like before you get there. Right? You want to actually be you there. Right? We want to actually enter into eternity with the lover of our souls, with eyes wide open to who he is and what he's done for us and what he's inviting us into. And to do that means cross now and crown later. It means rejecting the lies of escape of the Antichrist. It means enduring the suffering and the cost, counting the cost and then paying it. That's what it means. Turn with me over First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. I'm going to read a whole big chunk to you. It says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill. Let me say that again. The lawless nun will be revealed. The Antichrist will be known for who he is, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but a pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who love us give us eternal comfort 
and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Beloved, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-17. through 17. Beloved, God is in control. And Jesus is returning in power for his beloved. And by the way, that's you. You are the beloved of Jesus. He's the lover of your soul. He's called you and washed you and is preserving you. Beloved, stay awake. Await his return with eager expectation. Do not be drawn away by false salvations, for you will know when your bridegroom is here. There will be no questions in your mind, so wait with steadfastness. Endure the suffering of this life and this age, that you may be delivered to eternity with him. Amen? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, and the band's going to sing a song. And I want to invite you guys to sing that song with them, to reflect on the truth of what's being said. We're going to talk about Jesus as our king, the king of our hearts, lover of our soul. And we've kind of got through the meat of that song. I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to open some space for us to sit in prayer and reflection. Maybe, maybe you need to grab one of the pastors. Or maybe you need to sit by yourself. Or maybe you need to come and take communion. We're going to give some space for just kind of all of that. So I want you to reflect on this. I want you to actually be honest with where you and Jesus stand. Because what what he thinks about you is set in stone. He loves you, he's crazy about you, and he's coming back for you. Wait for him. The question you have to ask is what you think about him. Is it worth the wait? Is it worth the cost? Do the other salvations sound better to you? Be honest with him. Reflect on that. Come and take the elements in that moment. Declare his death till his return. Or sit and be honest and confessional about honestly how your heart longs for false salvation. Let's, let's give ourselves, we'll, we'll sing, and then I'll come back up, but let's, let's allow ourselves in this moment to engage these words, to engage the hope of Christ's promised return, and to engage confessionally the weakness of our hearts. Sound good? Jesus, we love you. We just so desperately need you. We just need you a ton. We need you to speak truth over the lies in our hearts. Call them out for what they are. Our easy escapism. Our lesser saviors. Spirit, shine a spotlight on that. That we might repent and turn to you, the king of our heart, the lover of our soul, our only true salvation. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.